self-development with tactics. So today we are going through a book and the book is called once again, I have, as I think, I think that I've said it yesterday, I kind of have rediscovered the, uh, the habit or the, the willingness to go through book summaries. And I, I think that there is just so much to learn. And as I've been talking about it, you know, for the past, I don't know, one and a half years, I guess. Books are a very, very interesting medium for me. Um, you know, when you're Googling something, and, and of course, it depends on, on how you do things and what you're reading and whatnot, but most often you get an answer for a very specific question. But with book, it is the case that you get knowledge from things that you were not searching for. You know, you get insights into 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 different things, and it is a, a way broader spectrum of knowledge I would say and I would consider but but anyway I mean the, the podcast per se really helped me to go through things and learn th- things which is insane it's it's an insanely cool thing for me so yeah I see I have decided to not have a video here I don't know why but I'm just gonna try it out once again I kind of have seen that you know by having a video and by filming myself I've kind of you know to some degree I'm limiting the power of, of the words, I think. I don't know why, but, but we're going to see. So the book is called Cooked by Michael Pollan. And he seems to be an author that wrote quite a lot of different books. Um, for example, The Omnivore's Dilemma. Um, yeah, and it this Cooked, the book, is also a New York Times bestseller, apparently. Which, you know, if you know a bit about the New York Times bestselling list is maybe not that of a big factor. But anyway, I'm going to go through it. So what is in it for me? Learn how cooking transformed what it means to be a human. What makes us human? Is it that we can speak and sing? Other animals can also do these things. Or is it that we are empathetic? Probably not, as other animals show empathy too. The one thing that makes us human is a serious combination or curious combination of fire and pot. Humans cook. This seemingly simple act has played an enormous role in shaping our history. By learning how to cook, humans as a species have thrived, achieved, have thrived, achieving things we would never have been able to achieve had we stuck to a basic for aging diet. This book summary walks you through humanity's kitchen, examining the pots and pans and ovens and grills that together have helped create history. In this book, you'll discover why there is a connection between cooking less and eating poorly, why consuming a cooked egg is healthier than eating a raw one, and how yeast transforms society's relationship with grain. All things that are just not that interesting for me, but who knows? You know, maybe there is something, something of value for me. But we will see. Part number uno. Cooking food makes raw ingredients more digestible and more nutritious for humans. For humans. I want to point it out because I guess it's important. Some people think that raw food diets represent a return to nature, a healthier way to live. But such 
logic is off base. If we didn't cook food, we would spend a ton of time just doing it. For humans to live well consuming just raw food, we would need a much larger gut and more powerful jaws. Our ape-like ancestors did have these traits, but they came with a trade-off. Primatologist Richard Rangham hypothesized yeah. <laughs> that before early humans began to cook, they spent over half their day chewing their food, which is, I mean, if you kind of put that into perspective, if you're doing that nowadays, it's just a waste of time. You know, it really is. I mean, we have to work, we have to take care of different things. Life is busy and we wouldn't be able to do so. So yeah. We can witness this today with chimpanzees that like to eat meat but don't cook. When a chimpanzee eats raw meat, it has to chew for a long time, technically leaving it a little time to hunt. Not nearly enough time to properly support a carnivorous, carnivorous diet, which is diet I think that quite only includes meat, doesn't it? Anyway, regarding expended calories, eating hard to digest food is costly. For many species, the calories expended in their chest and digestion are nearly equal to the calories needed to move around. So here's where cooking food makes a difference. Cooking alters the composition of food both physically and also chemically, making it more nutritious and easier to digest. When we cook a protein-rich food, uh, when we cook protein-rich food, I'm sorry, like meat, the heat works to unravel the structure of the meat's proteins, unlocking the energy within. These now weaker proteins structures are easily digested by the enzymes in the human stomach. Something that I didn't know, by the way. When you boil an egg, for example, 90% of the cooked egg is digestible. A raw egg, in contrast, is only 65% digestible by the human gut. The same result applies to many other foodstuffs. The more food is cooked, the easier it is for your gut to absorb the nutrients stored in the food. Another benefit of cooking is that it makes food safer to eat. Some plants, like the root cassava, a staple of South American cuisine, is toxic when raw. Once cooked, it is safe to eat, nutritious and easily digested. And this is something that I've kind of seen with zucchini. Apparently, you can also eat it raw. I don't know that many people that eat it raw, and I've been taught to, to cook it and not eat it raw. I've tried it once, and then I really got an upset stomach. Um, it might be the case that it is not that easy to be digested, but, you know, when cooked, it's it's completely fine and nothing to worry about then. But, um, but yeah, just something that went through my mind and i definitely have to say i mean food definitely is then um safer also nowadays i mean nowadays the food quality is really high you know whether you are eating only organic food or not it in general is very 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 high um but of course if you're eating a lot of plants and veggie stuff or you might be having some dirt on them you might be having some whatever on them and by cooking you are 100% you 100% can be sure that you're getting rid of these things at least of uh, bacteria and and some other shit that you might be concerned about but yeah cooking also works to preserve food thus raw meat that would spoil quickly remains edible for a longer period once it's cooked I mean, you, you can freeze things, and then back in the days, you were able to kind of store it in some way as well, but, but yeah. Summary, but I mean, of course, monkeys, I think, didn't really think about that, but yeah. What do smoked bacon, mushrooms, kelp, and anchovies have in common? They express umami. 
Lots of people would gladly add bacon to just about anything, but why has bacon become so popular? The recent obsession with this cured pork product is inspired by the human affinity for a unique taste also pres present in mushrooms, meaty broths and dried anchovies. It's called the fifth taste or umami. Here's how umami was discovered. For some time, scientists held that there were four tastes the human tongue could register. Bitter, sweet, sour and salty. Since 1908, however, Japanese researchers have recognized a fifth taste, the umami. At the turn of the century, chemist Kikunai Ikeda was studying the snowy crystals that form on dried kelp or kombu. The Japanese use kombu as an ingredient for soup stock, among other dishes. To his surprise, Ikeda made a curious discovery. What he found was glutamate the taste of which didn't quite fit into existing taste categories. So Ikeda coined the sensation as umami, roughly translated as pleasant, savory taste. It wasn't until 2001 when US scientists studying taste receptors on a human tongue found one specifically for glutamates, thus cementing the idea in the West of umami as a fifth taste. But while glutamate is the basis of many distinctively flavored foods, when consumed on its own, it's neither tasty or flavorful. Rather, umami happens when glutamate is combined with other flavors. Umami is also associated with the texture of certain foods. For instance, liquids such as soup broth that contain flavorings consistent with umami tastes can feel thicker on the tongue. So while glutamate is key to the expression of umami in food, two other molecules also influence umami flavors. Inosin is found in fish, guanosin in mushrooms. You've probably experienced umami when you add fish sauce to a steaming bowl of Vietnamese tho or porcini mushroom stock to a creamy risotto. Traditional Japanese soup stock uses foods that contain all three of these molecules, molecules, I'm sorry, a veritable umami explosion. I'm actually not that, um, well, not that fond of Japanese or, or Asian in general uh, foods. I tend to not be able to digest them very well. I mean, I don't know in which way you can compare Asian food from Asian, Asian restaurants that we're having here in Europe and you know, in Austria and to the real deal quite, but, but I don't know, like it's, you know, it's, I think in general it is relatively fatty and also relatively salty. And I kind of have a feeling that something glutamate like, you know, which is something that they like to add, maybe it is in terms of starch, that it is very starchy, you know, the sauces and whatnot, something is that I don't remember. Um, there was something that I've read somewhere, I don't know. But, um, but yeah, you know, I tend to get an upset stomach relatively quickly, unless it is sushi or something that's fine, really fine. And also relatively cheap if you think about it, but anyway. Um, summary part three. The move to convenience foods post-war led to a gradual but consistent decline in healthy eating. Just 20% of the money households spend on food is directed to the people who produce the food. So where does the rest of their money go? Americans' food is the industri industrial complex consists of more than just massive farms. The system is made up of food manufacturers, advertising executives, executive and marketers, which 
decades ago worked to create a surplus of industrially processed food. This quickly became the basis of the American diet, which I think, um, as it is on a well, as it is actually known on the whole world, is, is one of the worst diets you can have. The quote-unquote traditional American diet, as it is right now. I mean, back in the days with um, the the ancestors of America, like the the natives, um, that diet was completely different. I assume, you know. But yeah. After World War II, the food manufacturers that supplied rations to US troops abroad needed a market for their products. As a result, canned dinners, dehydrated potatoes and instant coffee became the staple for convenience food in 1950s America. Praised as innovative, convenience foods also created problems. As people gave up cooking fresh foods, diets became less healthy overall. But why exactly? Processed ingredients, ready-made meals and fast foods, quote-unquote, are usually less healthy than fresh food. It's far cheaper for a company to create processed foods by pilling sugar, fat and salt onto a base of corn or soybean material that is for a farmer to grow whole natural foods. Then it is, sorry. Processed food is thus both big business and big money. Aside from being unhealthy to eat, processed food processes poses another problem for society. Because it's also easy to obtain and consume, we eat more processed foods than whole foods because it's more convenient. Popping a frozen pizza in the oven is far easier than making a dough and tomato sauce yourself. And if you had to mix the ingredients for every soda you guzzled, you would probably drink far less. In fact, the connection between the abandonment of cooking and healthy eating is so pronounced that time spent in the kitchen is inversely correlated to obesity levels. In 2003, Harvard economists performed a study that looked at how people cook in different cultures. They found that the more time people spent preparing food in the kitchen, the less obese they were overall. What's more, the economists discovered that the time people spent in the kitchen cooking was a better indicator of obesity level than was income or country's percentage of women in the workplace. But I mean, they're all tied together. If you think about your income, then um, in, in certain countries, you're probably not going to buy that much fresh food, you know, or f- fresh fruits, therefore, and veggies, and also um, maybe fresh meat. Um, since in, in some countries, I don't want to just generalize that. In, in some countries, it's, it's definitely going to be cheaper to, to eat McDonald's and whatnot, even though I do have to say that, for example, in... Know where I'm living, it is definitely not the case. I mean, if you know what you're buying and if you know what you're eating, then uh, if you don't think about taste, you know, if you don't think about the food being tasty and whatnot, then it can definitely be way cheaper by um, by buying food and cooking it on yourself, you know. Uh, for example, if you take, I don't know, I mean, if you pop in a pizza, well, there is very cheap pizza. Very, very incredibly cheap pizza. But um, but I don't know. You, you also have to keep in mind, you know, satiety. And, well, I mean, if... I guess that there is actually pizza that is below one euro. If I remember it correctly. But I, I don't remember, unfortunately. But if you take that, well, maybe you're going to eat two of those. So you're already at two bucks or something, quite. And for two bucks, you could, for example, uh, buy a can of beans and, 
you know, definitely some veggies if you're just buying them in bulk and you think about the long term and not only the short term. And you can cook something that's way fucking healthier and probably the same price and maybe even cheaper, you know. Because, I mean, if you're spending two bucks per meal, which is if you eat three times a day, which I don't assume that you eat three times a day of pizza, I hope at least, um, that, I mean, it's quite something, you know. Two times three is six, six bucks. For six bucks, you can actually, you know, cook something quite incredible, you know. If you know what to buy and if you know how to cook and if you if, if you just know things, I would say. At least it is the case uh, where I'm living. There, you can definitely get something for that amount of money. But yeah. So I think it is also sometimes an excuse like, okay, I don't have that much money. But in the end, it is more about, okay, I just don't want to cook. At least in my point of view. But yeah. Summary part four. The process of fermenting and baking dough unlocks nutrients, making bread a needed staple. Whether eating out or cooking at home, the sandwich remains the most common American meal and what's more important for making a sandwich than the bread. Bread has become a staple of the American diet for many reasons. When humans learned to make bread, they tapped into massive energy stores previously locked up in grasses and grains. Our paleo Paleolithic ancestors used to eat the seeds of wild grasses, the only part of the plant that the stomach can immediately digest. Those same early societies began cultivating the need the seeds the seeds plants for food. It began cultivating the seed plants for food, harvesting bigger, more nutritious seeds. With time, they found that by mashing, roasting, or soaking the seeds, the food was more filling and sustaining. This seed mush was also cooked on a hot surface as a sort of unleavened or leavened bread. Later in Egypt, around 4000 BC, a simple bowl of seed mush left in a warm place started to bubble, its contents expanding with air, while yeast in the mush had begun the process of fermentation. A curious cook, a curious cook, but what? A curious cook, but. Uh, put, I'm sorry. The fermented dough in an oven, thus creating the first loaf of leavened bread or leavened bread whatever this discovery discovery was a culinary game changer bread is far more nutritious nutritious than the sum of its parts the processes of fermentation and baking releases nutrients inaccessible in raw ingredients while a diet of raw meat or wheat flour i'm sorry could sustain a person for a short time a person can live on baked bread yeah we certainly can you know it, it, it would give us enough energy i would say Nutrient density isn't the only reason bread became a staple. Bread represents a smart use of energy. Grasses such as wheat, barley, oats and spelt cover some 65% of the earth's surface, absorbing the sun's rays and... What? 65%? Nah. Really? That's insane. Transforming them into energy through a process called photosynthesis. These grasses are food for the animals we in turn eat. Yet animals at the end of this food chain miss out on a lot of the original plant-based energy. When one animal eats another animal, only 10% of what the prey has consumed is accessible to the predator as energy. The other 90% has essentially been used by the prey. I see. Think of it as this way. It is as, it is a, it is as if you had 10 pounds of weeds to eat, but, three, but threw 9 pounds in the trash. Well, really great 
explanation. Consuming sources of energy lower down on the food chain, such as plants and seeds, is thus far more efficient. This is why we are more herbivores in nature than carnivores. So consuming sources of energy lower down on the food chain, such as plants and seeds, is thus far more efficient. Yeah, because you don't have to fucking hunt it, isn't it? Summary part 5. Industrial baking and the sweet taste of white bread has sapped loaves of any nutritional content. Well, I think that back in the days bread wasn't that bad. I mean, nowadays it's like, you know, you rather shouldn't be eating it, I guess. But anyway, now I've lost it. Americans get around 20% of their calories from wheat, which in itself isn't problematic. However, 95% of the wheat we consume comes in the form of white flour which has little nutritional content. In fact, eating white flour isn't much different than eating pure sugar. <laughs> the human craving for white bread is nothing new, but the industrial methods by which white bread is produced certainly are. For ancient Greeks and Romans, white bread was a prized commodity. Back then, when spoiled food and diseases were common, whiteness was an indicator of cleanliness and wholesomeness. White bread was all both also both sweeter and easier to chew than whole grain bread, an important consideration at a time when dental hygiene wasn't widely practiced and people often lost their teeth early in life. Although white bread was priced in Asian societies, the transition to pure white bread came in the 19th century with the invention of roller mills. These machines completely separated the undesirable quote-unquote germ and bran from a wheat seed, leaving just the starch behind. Removing the germ and bran, or the cool color and texture of a wheat seed also remove the most nutritious parts of the seed where vitamins, minerals and antioxidants are found. The results of our growing taste for and, for and consumption of white flour were evident at the beginning of the 20th century as communities showed increased signs of malnourishment, diabetes and heart disease. Because of increasing health problems, the government encouraged industrial bread producers to begin fortifying white bread with nutrients. In the 1940s, companies such as the Continental Baking Company and Wonder Bread began adding vitamin B to white bread. Gradually, companies started to add bran back to, to bread, creating whole grain loaves. Yet, the result still is nutritionally compared to bread made with whole wheat. Even worse, many of these whole grain loaves, loaves are loaded with additives and sugar to make them taste sweet like white bread. Summary part 6. Well, my, my take on that, don't eat white bread. Just don't. And, and also, um, have a look at the nutritional label, uh, have a look at what is in whatever the fuck you're eating. Yeah, as easy as it might sound and as dumb as it might sound, just fucking do it at the end. And, you know, don't eat stuff where there is a lot of things added, you know, especially some things that you can't even pronounce. Part 6. Microbes are not only essential to fermentation, but crucial to keeping your gut healthy. If extraterrestrials came to study humans on Earth, they might, they might conclude that we are some type of superorganism as hundreds of different species cohabitate each human body. These countless organisms perform essential functions without or even being aware. Oh, without our even being aware. We really are superorganisms composed primarily of microbes. Some nine-tenths of the cells in our body are those of microbial species, and a vast majority live in your gut. 
And as a result, 99% of the DNA in your body is microbial DNA. When you think about it that way, you're basically a vehicle for colonies of microscopic species. With that in mind, perhaps you would like to know what they're up to. The main role of microbes is to serve as external digesters, breaking down food so your body can better absorb nutrients. Microbes are also essential in the process of fermentation. The list of foods we love that wouldn't exist without microbes includes cheese, coffee, bread, beer and chocolate, to name a few. Nearly every culture on the planet uses the process of fermentation in one way or another to create edible foods. Yet, as we sterilize more and more of the food we eat, we are losing the potential health benefits that microbes can provide. Modern medicine has encouraged the overuse of antibiotics, which indiscriminately kill off microbes in the stomach, good and also bad, unfortunately. Of course, it is good because it's killing the bad bacteria, but, you know, or microbes. But yeah, of course, also the good ones, unfortunately. For centuries, humans have known that fermented foods are healthy. For example, when Captain Cook embarked on a two-year sea voyage, he took along a supply of sauerkraut to feed his crew and combat scurvy. Uh, we now know why this worked, as sauerkraut is packed with vitamin C. Summary part 7. Humans and animals alike enjoy a stiff drink, but some fermented foods are in acquired taste. Our an acquired taste. When the fruit of the durian tree drops to the ground and begins to rot, it's only a matter of time before visitors of all shapes and sizes gather to reap the spoils. Among them are tigers, wild pigs, rhinos, all seeking the spontaneously fermented alcohol that this process produces. That this process produces. Alcohol is the most popular fermented food, not just across cultures, but also the animal kingdom. While humans are the only animals that make alcohol, although there have been reports of monkeys in China fermenting fruit to drink the alcoholic result, many animals have it made for them. For instance, the Bertram palm in Malaysia produces a daily supply of fermented flower buds for the pan-tailed tree's crew or shrew. The little rodent slurps from each flower's... What? <laughs> the little rodent... Uh, slurps from each flowers as it flirts what flits from palm to palm pollinating the trees in studies chimps and rats have also been found to be liquor enthusiasts although their drinking habit is stiffer if you put a chimp in an all-you-can-drink situation that's precisely what it will do rats on the other hand act more like humans enjoying an aperitif before dinner and another at day's end they then proceed to get ludicrously drunk together about twice a week. <laughs> Other species also drink socially and the reason for this behavior is simple. A single drink a single drunk animal is an easy mark for predators. While we all seem to enjoy a drink, a taste for other fermented food is often culturally determined. Korean kimchi, Icelandic pickled shark and aged French cheese are all fermented foods with strong flavors for which people acquire a taste as children. Outsiders who encounter these foods later in life often have a strong positive or negative reaction to them. One powerful example from, comes from World War II when American troops were ordered to burn down a series of warehouses in Normandy, France, thinking they contained stinking corpse. In reality, their culturally unadapted noses had misidentified huge stores of typically punched camembert cheese. In review, cooked Cooked Book Summary. The key message in this book. 
Cooking is more than a hobby, a chore or a lively career path. It's a defining trait of the human race. However, the more we've placed cooking in the hands of corporations, the less wholesome and pleasurable our food has become. Actionable advice. Try your, try your hand at fermentation. Have a, have a go at baking a fresh loaf of bread, uh, pickling a jar of vegetables or even making meat from honey. What? Meat from honey. Even the simplest act of fermentation can elucidate, yes, the mystery of this natural process, all the while filling you with wonder at its infinite possibilities. And yeah, that's actually the book, or that was the book. I hope that you've liked it. I think that's actually been very interesting. Um, I didn't assume that, or I, I didn't uh, anticipate that to some degree. But yeah, I'm actually pretty happy that I went through that and I'm hopefully going to see you the next time. So I wish you the best. Please stay safe and bye-bye.